very quickly, I want to recap where we are in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, We'll dive into verse 20, but just kind of uh, getting us set up for what we'll be looking at. Abraham has been given a promise, a promise that's been reiterated, a promise for he and his wife Sarah. The promise was not just that God would give them a land, a land of promise, but that God would take Abraham and Sarah and grow their family into a mighty nation that would inhabit that land, that God would work through that nation, ultimately bringing a savior to the world. The only catch, the hitch, is that Abraham and Sarah had not had a child, making it very difficult for their offspring to develop into a nation when they couldn't get one offspring together. Not only that, but the other problem is that at this juncture, as you get into chapter 18, both Abraham and Sarah are old. They're old. They're old people. They're beyond childbearing age. But God has continued to reiterate a promise that this son would not come through natural processes, but would be supernaturally given. Well, Abraham is chilling out in Merami, sitting out in front of the tent, and he looks ahead, and he has three sojourners approaching. Now, we come to find out that these three men are actually two angels and the Lord, Jesus. And there's an incredible uh, interaction that takes place. Abraham rushes out, he meets them, he invites them in. He and Sarah prepare a feast, they eat. It's a very cool scene. Well, in the process, God reiterates again to Abraham that this time next year he's going to have a son. Well, Sarah, overhearing the conversation, chuckles to herself. And I don't think her laughter was based in unbelief, but just the promises of God were kind of funny. And as a result, the Lord turns and says, Sarah, why are you laughing? All things are possible with the Lord. And isn't that a wonderful truth? Now, it's, it's kind of in this scene, it's in this setup that we'll just get to verse 20, that the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that's come to me. And if not, I, I will know. So the men turned away from there, went toward Sodom. So the two angels go forward. Abraham, we're told, still stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Two angels leave Abraham. They head towards Sodom. It's clear Abe and the Lord are going to have a chat. I love the way that the scene kind of gets set up. Two things kind of happen. We're told Abraham initially stood before the Lord. Did you see that? But then after the two men leave, what does he do? We're told he came near the Lord. I love the fact that the Lord made himself very approachable to Abraham. On the flip side of that, I love the fact that Abraham found the Lord approachable. That he could come, he could stand near, and he could come close. That they could have this chat. Never forget, fallen man is only given an audience with the Most High God. Fallen man never warrants it. What's also interesting is that while the Lord has told Abraham, really only told him, that they were going to go check out, see what was going on in Sodom. There was this outcry, their sin was grave. They were going to go check it out. But Abe, he has a perception, an an insight, that this visit was not just going to be to evaluate, but would end with judgment. Abe knew what these cities were like. I'm sure that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah had even reached Abraham's ears as well. And yet, I love the question. The question is fascinating. He asked the Lord, knowing that God was going to go and judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he asked the Lord, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He knew destruction was on the horizon. Now, as we read on, it's important you keep in mind that this question, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked, was the exact question that God wanted Abraham to ask. 
that this was the right question because God would answer this question and in doing so reveal a part of himself to, to Abraham that he needed to know. Abraham continues. Verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous within Sodom. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as, as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be then as the wicked. Far be it from you, God. Shall not the judge of all of the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, I'll spare all of the place for their sake. Now Abraham's notion that the Lord would not judge the righteous with the wicked. That's, that's an interesting observation that Abraham has made. And you kind of have to wonder, like, where did he get that idea? Where did he get that idea about God? And the answer is that Abraham's understanding of God's justice, that he wouldn't judge the righteous with the wicked, he knew this of God through previous precedents established by God, revealed how? Through God's word. Case in point. Abraham was fully aware that God had previously judged the entire world. Like the idea of God judging a few wicked cities, not a big thing, when Abraham had had a conversation with Shem, his great-great-great-grandfather, who had been on the boat, Noah's son. And what had happened in that, in that instance? Why had Noah and his family been saved from the judgment of God? Because they had been found to be righteous, so in Abraham's mind, like logic only followed that if there were just enough righteous men and women living in Sodom, and no doubt I'm sure he's thinking of his family. We already know up until this point, Lot, his nephew and his family are living in Sodom. Abraham's thinking if there's enough righteous, maybe it will tip the scales and God will spare the city. The question is how many righteous would be necessary? for God to spare judgment. Starts out with 50, right? They had this dialogue, verse 27. So Abraham, after God's like, sure, 50, go for it. Abraham answers and says, indeed now, uh, I am but dust and ashes. I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. I don't know why he couldn't have just said 45. That would have been easier. Would you destroy all of the city for the lack of just five? So God said, if I find 45, I won't destroy it. So Abraham spoke to God yet again. He said, suppose there's 40. So God said, well, I will not do it for the sake of 40. So Abraham said, don't be angry with me. I'll speak, let's say 30. What about 30? This is a negotiation happening, right? God's really not negotiating. He's just laying down his position. 30? Sure. If there's 30, I'll spare the city. So Abraham said, indeed now I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. What about 20? What if 20 should be found there? So God says, well, okay. I shall not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Abraham gets a little bold here. He says, let, 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 let the Lord not be angry. I'm going to just one more, one more time. Suppose, suppose 10 should be found there. So the Lord said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. So the Lord went his way. As soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. You know, if I had been God, and this is just another reason that it's a good thing I'm not. Like, I'm not so sure I would have tolerated having such a conversation with Abraham. Especially when you place it in light of the fact that Abraham, Abraham has proven to be more of a failure than a success. I mean, it took a serious amount, an incredible amount of gall for Abraham to come near the God of the universe and have such a negotiation. Like, what gave Abraham the right? What gave him the standing 
to have a conversation with God like this, to negotiate with him. How ironic that following their conversation, we're, we're just told Abraham returned to his place. I bet he did. Like it was not his place to be having such a conversation in the first place. And yet aside from that, you have to consider, why would God, knowing that there weren't 10 righteous people in Sodom, why would God have this negotiation? Why would he have this conversation? Why would he indulge Abraham? I think there's three reasons. First, I think God wanted Abraham to realize before judgment that the judgment of Sodom was necessary. Like through the negotiation, you can kind of imagine Abraham's like 50. And God's like, yeah, that's cool. And he's thinking, eh, maybe, maybe that's a little high. 45. Mm. Like in his negotiation, he gets down to 10 people. Like I think as Abraham negotiates, like it begins to dawn on him. God's going to judge that city. There's not enough righteous to spare it because of their wickedness. Not only had the outcry against them be great, but in the end, Abraham knew, or at least came to realize, as God had, there were not even ten righteous. They had been given time to repent, time to come back to the Lord, and yet they hadn't. So the negotiation, I think it's God's way of letting Abraham know judgment was warranted. Two, I think God indulged Abraham because he didn't want to discourage his heart for his fellow man. Like Abraham interceding for Sodom was the right attitude for him to have. Like there had been a day that Abraham had been just like those living in Sodom. That he had been a Gentile pagan who had rejected God, who was mired in sin, who had rejected revelation. Like, like Abraham knew that there was really fundamentally nothing that separated he and them but one thing, God's amazing grace. And it's because Abraham understood that apart from God's grace, he was no different than they. Interceding on their behalf was the only logical, right approach he could take. Now, I think it's sad when Christians, whether jokingly or just, I don't know what the motivation is, but where Christians end up calling for God's judgment on the wicked, whether it be the homosexual community or, or abortion clinics, or we see atrocities, other nations, <laughs> and Christians are like, I hope God judges them. Do you know that, that that's not the right attitude? Because the only thing that makes you any different than them is not you, God's grace. And our attitude, our heart should be love and compassion and intercession. We know judgment will come. We won't bring it, God will. And in the process of time, our heart should be, Lord, give them more time. Make me your hands and feet. Give me your words. My heart shouldn't be to see you destroy them. My heart should be that maybe you can use me to save them. I also think that the reason God indulges the negotiation is that God simply enjoyed the conversation. I think in like a weird way, God just loved hanging out with Abraham. He just loved spending time with him. You know this phrase that we, that we find at the, at the end of this, this section where we're told that when the Lord had finished speaking, the Lord went his way. That Hebrew word speaking, it's the word debar. It doesn't really necessarily imply verbal communication. A better translation would be communing, interacting, spending time. And in our vernacular, we would just say, when the Lord had finished hanging out with Abraham, he went his way. God enjoyed spending time with him. And thus, he, he indulged the conversation. You know, on a side note, if you ever really just take a minute and listen to your prayers, you might have 
like this moment where you kind of step back and think, what gives me the right to talk to the God of the universe in such ways? Like for me to tell the God of the universe what he should be doing, how he should be working, for me to weigh in. Sometimes I think if we, if we were to step back, it's like, oh my goodness, the fact that God just didn't smack me down right then is his grace. But I think God indulges it. Why? Because he loves spending time with you. He enjoys hearing you, even when he's thinking, no, you don't want me to do that. You have no idea what you're asking. <laughs> I love, I love that, that detail. Now, to set the stage for what's about to happen, I need to reiterate that there were two reasons that the Lord was going to visit and would later destroy Sodom. It sets the context. Two reasons. First, we've been told, reason one, that the outcry against Sodom was great. Like the word outcry, it implies a cry of distress, meaning that the cries of those in Sodom who had been abused, taken advantage of, victimized by this sinful, wicked culture, the innocent victims. It was their anguish that had reached the throne of God and had now necessitated God act on their behalf sooner than later. Never forget, justice for the wronged is an equal part of the equation concerning God's judgment of the wicked. But there's a second reason, aside from just their outcry being great. We're also told that their sin was very grave. Now we noted this last Sunday, but this Hebrew word grave, it's important, really important. Because what it means is to be heavy to the point of now being unresponsive. Like I cannot emphasize this detail enough because in a fascinating way, we're going to kind of establish the, an idea this morning that God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah ends up being a manifestation of his grace. And I'll unpack that. Now keep in mind, the citizens of Sodom were not in blind rebellion against God. Like it wasn't as though that they had been acting in ignorance, ignorance of the truth, ignorance of revelation, ignorance of who God was. Like just a few chapters back, Ched Lamar and his, uh, his armies come down, take the citizens of Sodom captive. Take them all the way up into, into to the area of Dan, northern Israel. Lot caught up in the midst of it. Word gets to Abraham. What does Abraham do? He gears up, arms up the boys, and they go and they liberate these citizens, these people. Abraham does this. God gives Abraham a great victory. As they're coming back, Abraham demonstrates incredible kindness. He doesn't want anything from them. He returns them. There's this whole scene of Melchizedek coming out. Sodom and Gomorrah, these people, they knew of God. They weren't innocent. They'd been liberated. The God who had freed them would now be the God who would judge them. They knew the true God. And yet, Sodom's sins were egregious, not only because they were rebelling against the light, but their sins were dangerous for this reason. As a culture, they had reached, as a people, kind of a point of, of moral no return. Like their rebellion against God had reached a tipping point. It's what this word grave indicates. They had reached a moment in time when God, their sin was so grave, God had stopped resisting them. They were unresponsive to God's revelation. Now, this really isn't a difficult concept to wrap our brains around because we've all experienced this. For a minute, I want you to think back to a behavior that you've engaged in, in the past, that you knew was wrong. Season of life, you were doing something, you knew it was wrong. For example, let's just say, maybe in a moment of weakness, you slept with your girlfriend or boyfriend. The next day, you woke up, you felt terrible. You knew it was wrong. 
Maybe, just maybe, you took an, an unethical shortcut at work. You knew it was wrong. You knew you shouldn't have done it. And now you're kind of being eaten up by it. Maybe you ended up flirting in an inappropriate way with someone other than your spouse, and the entire sleepless night that followed left you feeling awful. You knew you overstepped a boundary. Now, under the weight of guilt, conviction, what typically happens is you make a resolution to never do whatever it was you did again. But in the process of time, what happens? That opportunity resurfaces, and you are left now with another choice. Do what I know is wrong or resist doing what I know is wrong. Now, the more and more you end up acting, and think about your own situation, in defiance to your moral conscience, the more you resist the Holy Spirit's leading on your heart, isn't it true that the more and more you do this, you do what you know is wrong, the longer you do that, the less God ends up resisting you. And this is how you know it. You're no longer feeling the same amount of guilt. And the easier that activity becomes. Like your sin becomes grave. In the sense, you're no longer responding to divine influence the divine influence that seeks to deter such behaviors. As a matter of fact, the longer this continues undeterred, a moment will inevitably arise when it's not that you're no longer feeling guilt or no longer feeling remorse. This is what happens. The more you resist it, the more you work against it, the more you do what you know you shouldn't, the less guilt you feel, the less remorse you feel, the less of God's resistance you experience to a point that there comes this moment in time that what happens? You now end up justifying that very behavior as being okay now. Like four or five months, a year ago, it was terrible. You felt it. Now, because you resisted it, your sins become grave. You're no longer responsive. Like it's okay. Your sin becomes rationalized. It becomes normalized. In a sense, you set yourself free to now live by your own set of ethics. And this is what you need to understand. This development, that moment, where you're no longer feeling remorse, you're no longer feeling guilt, and you've rationalized it, you've justified it, it's that moment that that becomes the mechanism by which God actually judges you. In a twist... God judges sinful man by giving them over to their rebellion. You see, once you're no longer responding to his appeal that there's a better way, God will allow you the freedom to live any way you see fit. He lets go. Like God judges by literally giving the unresponsive sinner what they want. He hands them over to their base, natural, fallen proclivities. Let me give you an example to this. Why is it that greed is so often rewarded with riches? That God allows really greedy people to get really wealthy. He's giving them what they want. Like, why do the most self-centered, egotistical people in our society gain fame and notoriety that they crave? <laughs> Kanye West. <laughs> Miley Cyrus. Like, like, why do they end up getting what they really, 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 really want? Why do, or why is, it that narcissism seems to be the only prerequisite to anyone who runs for public office. Why do the narcissists get power? Why do hedonists have no problem attracting women 
willing to satisfy their sexual proclivities, their compulsions. You see, if you're trying to find meaning, purpose, or satisfaction in anything or anyone other than your maker, God will, at some point in time, allow this pursuit to take place because he knows full well one of two things will happen. One, you'll come to the ultimate realization those pursuits are empty, have left you ripped off. God will let you. Oh, you think money's going to solve your problems? You think sex is going to solve your problems? You think drugs are going to solve your problems? You think power is going to solve your problems? You think any of these things are going to solve your problems? I've been telling you, it won't. You're no longer listening to me, so knock yourself out. Go for it. I'm no longer going to resist you. Have fun. Hoping at some point, you're like, what have I been doing? This has not helped me at all. Maybe my maker my creator, my savior, knew what he was talking about. It's one of the reasons God will, will do this. But there's another reason. God will let you, he will allow you to pursue the things you want. Because if you don't come to him, this is what happens. That very pursuit will inevitably become your hell. And the irony to that is when this happens, it leaves you in the place of judgment with no one to blame but whom? You. Not God. He allowed you to do what you wanted. He resisted. He tried to say no. In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis, he makes this incredible observation. He writes this, the damned are in one sense successful Rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. It's an interesting idea. Now, before we get to chapter 19, there's one more idea that we do need to address. And that's that while God allows mankind the freedom to pursue his own destruction, there is a limitation to how long God will idly stand by and watch that happen. As as we'll soon see, Sodom's rebellion against God had fostered a culture so depraved, their destruction and judgment was warranted. Because their sin was grave, Sodom had reached a point that they were now beyond saving. As such, putting an end to their pursuit was in actuality an act of God's love and grace. I mean, how can an all-loving God allow self-destruction to continue unabated? Like, at what point does God, in love, watching you destroy yourself, step back and say, enough's enough, and puts down your rebellion? You see, allowing their depravity to linger, to deepen, would only worsen the hell they were creating for themselves. Sodom had reached a point. They had reached this moment. The irony, there's going to come a day when every human being rejecting God reaches that moment. Where God's like, enough's enough. It's over. This world is cruising to such a moment as well. Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, likewise, It was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day Lot went out of Sodom, this is what Jesus said happened. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and God destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Chapter 19, verse one. Now the angels who came to Sodom in the evening Lot was sitting in the gate. And when he saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face towards the ground. Lot said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house, spend the night, wash your feet, rise early, and go your way. Well, the angel said, No, we're going to spend the night in the open square. But Lot insisted strongly, 
So they turned into him, entered his house. Lot made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. While we're going to address Lot next Sunday, I want you to notice how the scene opens. We're told two angels come to Sodom in the evening. Lot sitting at the gate, so he sees them, sees them arrive. Now, we, we don't know if Lot recognized that these were two angels or whether he just saw them as two men. The text says two angels came. Earlier, these were two men. We don't know how, how Lot saw them, if he recognized them. However, what is very evident is this notion that they were going to spend the night in the public square. Time out. Like Lot here is like, no, 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 no. You need to come to my house. We're going to have dinner. You're going to stay. You're going to wash your feet. You're going to get up early, have a little breakfast, little waffle house, get out of town. Like the way that this all plays out gives the idea that Lot sensed a very clear and present danger with these men showing up to town. We're actually told when they resisted him that Lot insisted strongly. Like the Hebrew, it means he pressed upon them greatly. Like Lot was not going to take no for an answer. Lot knew the wickedness of Sodom. Lot feared what would happen. And in an act of nobility, of kindness, he tries to get these two men into his house, into a place of protection. He tries to, to, to make sure they're safe. Well, it didn't last long. Verse 4, before they laid down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded Lot's house. And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Despite Lot's <clears throat> best attempts at concealing these men's arrival, word had spread that some fresh meat was in town. This picture, the way the scene gets set, of the men, both old, young, all of the people from every corner coming, surrounding the house. Like it gives us this idea, the entire city of Sodom was unified in this perverse desire. The, the phrase that we may know them carnally tells us that the intention of this male mob was to rape and molest these two unwilling participants. Now there are some who go to great lengths to whitewash the homosexual element out of the, the story of Sodom and the judgment of Sodom. And they do this to make the Bible more palatable, easier to digest, a little easier to swallow. The problem with that is the text here is so straightforward that adopting such a position requires you to abandon a literal plain reading of the passage. Not to mention, it's the truth that as a result of this very story, historically, from a biblical standpoint and even a cultural standpoint, the word Sodom and the word Sodomite, someone who lives in Sodom, have become synonymous with homosexual perversion. You find it in scripture, you find it referred to even in culture. Now, I know, that, <laughs> I know this is not a popular topic for pastors to preach on especially this being the Christmas season. I'm also fully aware that as a result of what I'm about to say, I'm going to probably get unfairly branded a homophobe. You can add it to the list. But the Bible is absolutely clear that homosexual activity is forbidden by God. Like, like not only is this addressed in this passage, further elaborated upon in the law. But you're going to find that the Apostle Paul wrote extensively in several New Testament epistles about homosexuality being a work of the flesh and not the spirit. Like, you can disagree with me. And that's, that's your right. That's fair. But this is what you can't do. You can't use the Bible to justify your opposition. Because the Bible doesn't give you room for that. That said, it should also, though, be pointed out that homosexuality is addressed in Scripture with the same level of seriousness as heterosexual activity 
outside of marriage, adultery, as well as general sexual immorality, things like pornography and whatnot. Here's the sad thing. When churches rarely speak out against the pervasiveness, the normalization of premarital sex within our culture, when the church very very rarely speaks about the fact that an astounding 50% of Christian marriages eventually end in divorce. When the church very rarely speaks out to the vast majority of Christian men struggling with porn, only to then spend a lot of time railing against homosexuality when the Bible presents all of this stuff in equal seriousness, you know, it's not a surprise. We come across like hypocrites. That's a shame. That's a, there's a problem with that. Understand, a fair, honest, biblical approach to homosexuality should address this behavior and or identity. I don't really care. The way we should address it should be the way we address all sin as being a symptom of a much deeper problem, our fallen nature and propensity to rebel against God. Like in this instance, Sodom rejected God and therefore God had given them over to pursue their sinful flesh, which had manifested itself clearly in same-sex indulgences. Here they were. This is how it manifested for them. The irony is that the root sin, the root is rebellion, the root is a fallen nature, a root is to do what I want. It manifests in their lives that way. In yours, it can manifest in all kinds of ways. Your pride, fill in the blank. You see, God was judging Sodom and that he had allowed them to indulge a sexual quest. God knew would never satisfy a deeper longing that was missing in their heart. As we'll see, while Sodom may have felt liberated from God's restrictive model concerning sexual activity, these men were very far from being free. God said, you can knock yourself out, do what you want. But what had happened? They had become enslaved to an empty pursuit. In order to expound on this point and provide more context for God's judgment of Sodom, I want to read for you just a very quick passage from Romans chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church in Rome. This is what he writes because it sets some context that's important. He says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, Godhead, so that they, and he's writing about people in times past, they are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, foolish in their hearts, their hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed, or literally exchanged, the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Therefore, and this is what's important, we're told God also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, these people who had exchanged the truth of God for the lie, who worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever. This reason, note again, God gave them up to vile passions, to uncleanness, now vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of the woman, that word natural, it's literally schematic, the natural schematic, leaving the natural schematic of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, notice again, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. You see how this worked? They wanted to do something. They were rejecting God. So God said, knock yourself out. God let them. He gave them over. And yet, this is important. God, he rains down fire and brimstone onto Sodom, not because they were gay. I hope you know that. The, the, the judgment was not because they were gay. Why did God judge them? 
because their rebellion had reached the tipping point. They were no longer responding to the conviction of God. Their sin was grave. They, and as a result, they had created this morally bankrupt, perverse culture, so much so that the outcry against them had reached, had reached God. He now had to act. Well, we're told Lot, he went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him. He said, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, the men of Sodom, stand back. Then they said, this is the one who came to stay here. Lot keeps acting as a judge. Well, we'll deal worse with you than with them. I mean, how absolutely appalling the scene, right? <laughs> Not just the actions of, of these men in Sodom, but Lot's proposal. <laughs> like in what world does that make sense? Please leave these men alone. I've got two virgin daughters. He says, literally, you can do to them whatever you wish. What? Like Lot here does everything he possibly can to placate to the wishes and the whims of this mob. But do you notice in the end what happens? He's just accused of being judgmental and intolerant. Like his strategy of moral appeasement blows up in his face. So they pressed hard against the man Lot. They came near to break down the door. But the men, these angels, reached out their hands. They pulled Lot into the house with them. They shut the door and they struck the men who were in the door of the house with blindness, both small and great. But look at this. So that they became weary trying to find the door. So the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, we're gonna have to kind of leave our scene in this place for next Sunday. But I do wanna just take our final few minutes to discuss what these angels do to these men. Like, here they are, they're in full rebellion against God. They, they're completely given over to the pursuit of their own carnal desires. Like now they're actively seeking to please self. Note, regardless of how that might affect anyone else who might be hurt in the process. And as a result, what happens? The angels strike these men with blindness. Now this word blindness, it's, it's a really interesting word. It's only two places that you're going to find this word in, in the entire Bible. This instance, you'll find it also again in 2 Kings. What makes the word so interesting is that it describes not just a visual blindness, but a state of absolute and utter confusion. Like beyond just the ability to see, this particular blindness, what happens here, it caused a total disorientation. And yet, even in that condition, what are these men doing? All they have left is their warped sexual drive, and now they're wearying themselves trying to get into the house. Terrible. Now, whether it be blindness or darkness, this is the way the Bible refers to the sinful condition of humanity. It, it paints a really good picture of sin. You see, sin, like blindness, is not a behavior, but rather a state of being. <laughs> you don't do blindness. You are blind. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. I'm going to say that again. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner any more than getting on all fours and running around the room barking like a dog makes you an actual dog. You see, the truth is that you are a sinner because you were born into a fallen state, separated from your creator. This means your sinful behaviors are really nothing more than the logical byproduct of that fallen state. You aren't a sinner 
because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Say that again. You aren't a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. This is why any argument seeking to justify human behavior as being the manifestation of what's natural, you know, the argument, I'm just born this way. It's a flawed argument for this reason. You see, as a human being, do you know what your biggest problem is? Your nature. Like, what is natural in you is flawed, it's broken, it's actually destructive. Case in point, ask yourself this simple question. What do you find easier to do, the right thing or the wrong thing? It's much more difficult to do the right thing, isn't it? Why? Because I'm really good at sinning. It's almost like it's second nature. It's first nature. It's what you are. You're really good at doing the wrong thing. You're really good at sinning. You're really good at stepping in it. Doing the right thing, man, that's, that's, that's what's hard. See, it's on account of being born into a darkened state, such a dysfunctional world, coupled with your obvious brokenness, that many people will find themselves at some point confused, often disoriented, because you're separated from God, because you've been relegated to darkness, because you're blind to the truth. You're left with questions. Questions like, who am I? Why am I so messed up? Why am I never satisfied? Where's my life going? Where am I? There's got to be something more. You ever had these thoughts? And yet, while the blind will try to devise all kinds of inferior ways in an attempt to navigate this world, it is a reality that every attempt pales to the ultimate remedy. If you're blind, getting a cane, a walking dog, braille, it's all workarounds. If you're blind, what's really the solution, if possible? Really the remedy? Being healed? Being able to see? I mean, that solves the problem, right? You see, the only solution is to have the lights turned on. The only cure for blindness is to see. You know, this is what makes Jesus so interesting and the terms Jesus even uses for himself. If we're all in this darkened world, disoriented because of sin, blind, how fascinating that Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. What do you need? You need light. You need to be able to see. I also think it's interesting in Luke 4 verse 18, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and note, recovery of sight to the blind. If you're lost, if this world makes no sense, the truth is, is that you're blind. The remedy is for you to see. As those in Sodom, I ask, do you want to live your life blinded? Blinded in your sin? Held captive by your warped desires? Left to weary yourself as you seek to navigate this world? Or friend, do you want your eyes to be opened? Do you want to finally see? Do you want to enjoy the life that God has around you? Do you want blindness or sight, light or darkness? The choice is yours. In John 3, we have John 3, 16, right? It's the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But have you read further? Like, let me just throw in a couple of verses that follow. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why did he send his son? So that the world through Jesus might be saved. And then, and then he says, and this is the condemnation. The problem. The light 
came into the world. But men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Sodom and Gomorrah, they weren't being judged because they were gay. They were being judged because they had rejected God. That they chose darkness rather than the light. And as a result of that, that choice and an act of love, God is like, I can't let the people I love and I care about, if they're going to reject me, that's one thing. But I can't allow them to continue to live the way that they are because who are they harming more than anything? Themselves. Like there's nothing, like, you know, you know it's, an, an, it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of events in the Special Olympics but they don't have blind people run hurdles. Right? You might get one. But at what point does, does the whole race turn bloody and bruised? There's a lot of you living life like a blind hurdler. It's like everything, you're just hitting a wall, hitting a wall hitting a wall. You're running, you're trying, you're striving, but you're hitting a wall. And life is just beating you to bits. Religion's like, hey, let me help you out. Here's this cane. You get to the first hurdle. Like, it doesn't work. It doesn't help. When Jesus is like, you want to get over the hurdles? How about this? How about sight? How about being able to see? There's still hurdles. But you're not left confused about everything. Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a tragedy. Because God had so much more planned for them. So much more in store. So much they wouldn't let him do. May that not be your story. May it not be your plight. The truth is life is short. And I'm not going to miss an opportunity to tell you unequivocally that Jesus did not come to condemn you, but to save you. This might be my last opportunity to say something to you. And I want you to know that Jesus loves you enough that he died to show it. He loved you enough to die to prove it. Why are you resisting that? And so, Father, I just want to let that marinate.